to the Act 2 Podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I'm Josh Hallman. I love that you like to surprise me with when we're recording. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're recording. Yeah. We're okay. Go, 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 go. <laughs> All right. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any of our upcoming interviews and topics. And give us a rating, write a comment, all the things. Yeah. Because it does help us out. It just helps us. It helps, you know, I don't know, the algorithm pop up in other writers' feeds or something. I don't know. <laughs> right. If you'd rather DM <laughs> us, <laughs> you can reach out to us at act2writers at gmail.com, all spelled out, or on our Twitter or Instagram at act2writers. Mm-hmm. Let's just get into it. Let's just get into it because we've got some stuff to talk about. We are talking about Pixar today, but before we get into Pixar and clearly a very objective list of what the best Pixar movies are, we're going to go into this week in writing. Do you mm-hmm. want to start? Are we both starting? Do we have the same ones? I, I, I think we do. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to Do you want to go? I think we should start with the Twitter topic. So there was a really interesting Twitter argument or just series of threads a week or so ago about staff writers who were, I guess, angry to find out that their showrunners were rewriting their scripts and that when they finally saw their episode that they had been hired to write, it wasn't anything that they'd written. Mm. Or was just vastly different. And a lot of people chimed in angrily, like, why are staff writers getting angry about this? Like, you need to learn to buck up. Like, that's just how it works. And that wasn't helpful. But I do feel like it warranted a conversation about this because when I first went into a writer's room not very long ago, I also was very surprised by this because I thought... You are hired because you're a great writer that they want in the room. You're assigned an episode because they want you to write that episode. You hang out and you break story with everyone. You are all on the same page. So why would you need to rewrite me? I am here on this journey with the showrunner knowing exactly what they want me to write. He or she has approved my outline. I'm going to write the script that they have hired me to write. And then they just rewrite me? Like, why? Is that an ego thing? I didn't understand it. And now I understand it. Oh. Oh yeah. So I'm at, your opinion actually probably has a little fire behind it. <laughs> maybe. Maybe what were you going to say? I was actually pretty intrigued because this was a little while ago on Twitter. We kind of let the dust settle. We let we let everyone get their comments in, move on to a new topic, but it stuck with us. Yeah. And I I actually thought it was pretty interesting. Like I didn't think people were going to get so upset. And fired up about it. Personally, I don't think it's that big of a deal. Really? I think if it happens continuously, yeah. What do you mean if it happens continuously? Like if it happens like 10 times in a row. Mm -hmm. Like at some point I'd be like, all right, what's going on here? But if it happens just like a handful of times. I feel like it's going to happen every time. What happens then? Do you do you have a conversation? What if a writer came up to you and you're they were like, Tasha, you keep rewriting me. What's up? Is it something I'm doing? 
And writers do do that to showrunners. And I think then showrunners have to have a difficult conversation of, look, this is just how the business works. And that was the big shocker to me, that it wasn't actually personal. And this is sort of the anxiety trip I was on when I first started showrunning. And I have someone else writing a couple of the episodes in each season. And I got my first draft in from this other writer. And I knew immediately that I had to rewrite her. And the reasons were a myriad of reasons. But the main one was not that it was a bad script, but that things had changed since she went off to go write it. And me being the showrunner, I am the only one who has the larger perspective of everything that's going on, like conversations I'm having with the producer, with the production executives, with the director, all of these things about what's possible, what's not possible, what tonally needs to start shifting, yeah. what thematically needs to start shifting. Actually, we need to have this in a different location. There's all of these really practical conversations I'm having that this writer is not having, and therefore I have to rewrite according to those things. And then on top of that, because I am consistently working on all of the scripts and this other writer is only working on hers, she has her unique perspective of just what I'm doing in my script and that's it. Whereas I, because I'm working on all of them, have a better handle on the voice of all of the characters across the scripts because I'm seeing that progression in real time and I, I'm the one kind of tracking that continuity. So maybe a joke or um, a moment that happens in episode two that this writer doesn't know of, they're not aware of because they're writing episode five and they haven't seen the latest draft of episode two. Mm -hmm. Because I know that there's that joke or that moment in episode two, I know that I need to connect it in her episode in episode five, and she just doesn't know she needs to do that. So there, there are just a lot of changes I had to make because I see the whole picture and she didn't. And I was very anxious about this when I realized I had to rewrite the script so much. So I called up a couple of showrunners that I know and was like, oh my God, am I a terrible, horrible person? Am I going to hell? What do I do? Do I have a conversation with this writer? Do I try to give them notes so that they can fix it themselves? And, and do we do that process? Although because of timing and scheduling and because scheduling and TV is so tight, it can be impossible to yeah. go through another round of notes with a writer, even though that's what you want to do. And 100% of the time, these showrunners came back to me and said, it is absolutely the job of the showrunner to rewrite people. Sometimes page one rewrite them. That's actually not uncommon at all, they said, to completely page one rewrite the scripts that you're getting in from your staff writers. And it's just how the job goes, they said. And again, it's because the showrunner has that overall perspective and it's not personal. It has nothing to do with the writer. They could have turned in a fantastic script. It's just that since they turned it in, some things have changed. So that, that was a big aspect. And I always give a round of notes to the writer. That's, yeah. That should be typical. Like allow them to get as much kind of fixed as you can and give them that shot to have as much of their writing in it as possible. But then after that, just because of the time crunch of TV, like I really just have to get in there and move stuff around and fix stuff um, just because it has to be turned in really, really quickly. So that was my experience. And it was kind of a shocker for me. And yeah, I mean, I, I know that my script for Witcher has probably been 
vastly rewritten. Did you call the writer and tell them you're rewriting or you just went forward with it and or did you have a conversation like, hey, just to let you know? I didn't because because it's considered so normal. Yeah. Okay. And the experienced TV writers know that that's just how it is. And I actually talked to other staff writers as well. And they were like, oh, yeah, it's just you just have to accept it because it's not your show. And this is what we talk about when we talk about writers rooms and writers etiquette when we and when we've done episodes about this topic from the staff writing perspective. It's like it's not your show. It's the showrunner show. And your job is actually not. And this is what I thought it was when I was hired to write on Witcher. Like I thought my job was to be a staff writer and write the best episode I could and to like have my name on it and I and I like have ownership of this yeah. cool episode. That's what I thought my job was. But it turns out it's not that at all. You're basically just hired to be a support team. And once you sort mm. of get that in your head is what your job is, I think you can release the anger from being rewritten because again, it's not about you. <laughs> it's about yeah. the show and the showrunner is the owner of that show essentially right. and the vision of that show. And if you want your own show, go and create your own show. And I think also a thing that is difficult to wrestle with is that the staff writer, regardless of if they're rewritten page one, rewrite, they will still get credit on that episode. So I'm still going to get credit on the finale of the Witcher blood origin, mm. even though maybe not a single word that I wrote <laughs> is in that episode. And that's, that's the benefit of it. Like that you yeah. still get credit and you can still go around telling people you wrote that even though you technically didn't because you've been completely rewritten. And that's the case with Tomb Raider as well. I've changed everyone's scripts. God bless them. They were awesome, but I had to change them. And um, I don't get credit for that. They get credit for that episode as they should. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. It is interesting. And we kind of had a conversation about this with features recently about how We've talked to writers or our friends or whoever that they've sold a script to a studio or they've sold whatever, they've sold a script and it just gets completely gutted. Mm -hmm. And a new writer comes on and maybe there's fragments of the original idea, but for the most part, it just gets rewritten. Yeah. And it's a pro because the writer has just sold a script and now they can get hired to do another job because of the script they sold. But at the same time, it's rewritten. Yeah. I mean... Our business is a very collaborative business. Yeah. When I read that, I was just like, yeah, that seems normal. I guess yeah. you get rewritten. Big deal. Yeah. Well, I would even say like how you mentioned after 10 times you see a pattern. This feels like some, some time to speak up. I actually would say it's more unlikely that your script is going to get made as written than, yeah. it's, than otherwise. And again, I think it's just for staff writers to understand going into this process, not to be precious about that and just be aware of it ahead of time. And you're not going to get shocked when it happens. Yeah. You know how I, I read it as, um, basically I have written this script and it is completely gutted. There's nothing left. You rewrote the entire thing, but I still get credit on it. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I, I'm sure that happens, but um, I think it sounds like what you're kind of saying is there's still elements of my original script in the in the draft that I gave you. Can be, or it can be completely completely different. Completely Who cares? You redone. get a credit. It's fine. You get a credit. Like that's what's so interesting is like, say, Josh, you were hired to write episode three of Tomb Raider. And yeah. then by the time we get to episode three, actually, I realize that episode three 
has to take place in a completely different location because right. the original location we pitched in the room just isn't working. Not only that, but like the arc of the character at episode three is completely wrong, which I only realized after getting to episode five. Right. <laughs> so like now I have to go back to episode three and completely rewrite it. And I'm sorry, you're still going to get credit on this. But when you watch it, when it comes out, you're going to be like, oh, this takes place in ancient Egypt now. And I originally wrote it in the south of France. And that's really weird. I truly wouldn't care at all. And to be totally honest with you, I wouldn't even remember what I wrote and what I didn't. <laughs> I think that would, that's going to be my thing too. <laughs> Whenever Witcher comes out, which will be like forever from now. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I mean, how would you, like, you can't even remember these things, you know? Yeah. Like people tell me I did something a week ago and I'm like, what? <laughs> It's so true. It is very true because your, your room, the distance between your room and when you turn in your script to when the show actually comes out is so huge. Yeah. I mean, I guess weird. smaller if it's on ne in network TV. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting. Well, do you think, though, by the way, like, do you feel like, hey, I get a credit on it, so who cares? Or do you still feel like you wish the showrunner would speak to you about it if they're going to change your stuff? I would probably not care at all. Mm -hmm. If I got a feel in the room that you maybe didn't like me and like I was doing something a little strange or if I was like, wow, what is like, I get a weird vibe here and then I'm getting rewritten. I'd probably be like, hey, if there's anything I can do better, just let me know. Like, yeah, I'm trying, you know, I know things are changing, blah, 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 blah. But if it's you and you're totally fine and I'm, I all of a sudden got hired for season two, whatever, I'd be like, I don't care. This is just part of it. Yeah. And, and I bet know, you if you ask that question to the showrunner of what can I do better, they're going to say nothing. You did great. It's not about that. It's just about like yeah. changes I just had to make. I would honestly still tell people I wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you did. Your name's <laughs> on it. <laughs> yeah. I, my name is on it. I wasn't rewritten. Done. <laughs> yeah. Next topic. Yeah. So it's this Lord Miller article that was in Variety. Yes. And it was essentially that Lord, and this is going to segue perfectly into our bigger topic, I think, mm -hmm. because it all kind of connects, but it was saying that Lord and Miller, excuse me, Lord and Miller wrote an article essentially asking for a little more consideration with animated films as though they get kind of swept to the side. Yes. And, and I think it, it kind of struck you a little bit. Is that right? <laughs> you could say that. Yeah, it did. So you're obviously working on an animated show. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about the world of animation? compared to uh, the better stuff. Oh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm like, no, you know. I'm kidding. Your, your, face, your face just now was like. I can't recover from that. I can't. <laughs> Slapped me in the face. Okay. Um, yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. I mean, it is apropos to our topic. We love Pixar movies. I've loved Disney movies my whole life. It's yeah. a big reason why I wanted to get into this business. And early on in my career, I kept asking my agents, how do I get into animation? And they said, well, you need a comedy sample. I'm mm -hmm. like, well, I'm not interested in writing comedic, childlike animation. I want to write more adult animation. They're like, that doesn't exist. You need a comedy sample. Like even for the dramas that Pixar would put out, like you need yeah. a comedy sample for that. And that just never made any sense to me. Why, if I'm going to write a dramatic animated show, do I need a comedy sample? They're not the same thing. Yeah. So there is 
always been a disconnect with what animation was from people at the higher levels of our industry. And I think it continues. So when I got this job, there was an understanding that Tomb Raider was a really big property. So there was respect from that angle. But when I would talk to people about it, they'd be like, yeah, that's a really good starting point to do real stuff. And they would literally say these things like, yeah, that's really good practice for being a showrunner. I'm like, no, bitch, it is showrunning. <laughs> <laughs> it is the job. It's really hard. I don't like, even though it's animation, I don't know why that makes it. I'm not going on set. That's right. that's true. That's not what my job entails. But I'm still talking to the director. We're coming up with shots. We're we're talking about blocking. We're like doing all of the things, and it still takes many hours of the day, the same as it would in live action. So I'm just I'm gonna yeah. pause and take well, a breath. This is why I meditated before <laughs> this episode. <laughs> I and I in all seriousness, I don't understand it because I you know I love animation. I love yeah. animated films. I love Lord and Miller as well. Into the Spider Verse, although they didn't direct it, it, was one of my favorite movies two years ago, last year, whenever that was. Mitchell versus Machines and. I would argue that it's almost harder to create an emotional connection in animation where, for instance, you know, you can have monsters and robots and this and that, but you start to care about these these different things. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I don't think there should be a difference is my point. I don't think there should be either. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, yeah, it's really strange. Especially you see things coming out like Arcane and invincible mm -hmm. and these shows that are i mean and there's a ton on netflix right now like anime that are coming over um, castlevania is another great example of just these dramatic shows that have real character development yeah. that just happen to be animated frames and there's a sense of like oh i don't watch that my own family by the way <laughs> I was like, yeah, I finally like have my first show that's going to actually come out that you guys can see. Like, this has been a long time coming, right? My whole life, I've been trying to do this. It's finally going to happen, guys. You can watch something of mine on TV. Yeah. They're like, great. What is it? Tomb Raider, the animated series. Oh, it's animated? So you're doing a cartoon. When are you going to do something real? Mm. My grandma has lamented to my mom privately, not in conversations with me, that like, when is Tasha going to do something that's not a cartoon oh, so God. that I can watch it? I'm like, Shh. Jesus. <laughs> Damn. I hope your grandma doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> grandma, if you listen, you're going to like Tomb Raider. Just yeah. watch it. <laughs> yeah. You're going to love it. Yeah. And what, what's really interesting about that article is they cited uh, Beauty and the Beast and was nominated for an Academy Award. And that was yeah. essentially the thrust to create an animation category at the Oscars. Yeah. That was a really interesting point that I didn't know the backstory on. But what they're saying in their article is live action people were so afraid that Beauty and the Beast had gotten nominated for Best Picture that they were afraid that every year an animated movie was going to get chosen for this because people love them so much. Mm -hmm. And so they created a whole separate category. And that's why we have the animated movie category to just shove them aside and give them their own thing, basically. Yeah. And they also quoted something else that was kind of really interesting, where... Luca, Rey and the Last Dragon, and Mitchells versus the Machines were three of the 10 most streamed movies of 2021. And seven of those 10 most streamed movies were all animated. Seven of the top 10? Of the top 10 most streamed movies were animated. And wow. three of them were nominated. 50 
of the highest grossing films of all time are animated. So why <laughs> is there this sense that like animated movies are not real? I don't know. So although I, let me just, before I say what I'm going to say, let okay, me say okay. I firmly believe that animated movies are real movies and there should not be any difference between animation. I mean, the perception, it's stupid that people feel that way. However, I, I would argue the reason that some of these movies have a higher gross are because you're just throwing your kids in a theater five times over to go watch Mitchell. Ver well, I guess that was on Netflix. Yeah, but I'm watching it five times too. Like there are adult, and I think they actually have a stat in their article as well about how many of these movies are actually being seen by adults unaccompanied by children. How do they know that? Stats, who, man. Stats. Who made, who made this shit up? <laughs> I know that I will go see any animated film with my daughter, no question. Not by yourself? I, I used to go by myself. Okay, then. I told you my story when I saw Brave, right? No. The time I saw Brave by myself, it was like I had nothing to do during the day. I was like, I really want to go see Brave. And so I went and bought a ticket over at the Grove. I was all by myself. I rolled in. And my one seat, because I was, it was like one or two seats open, and the seat that I have was had was surrounded by kids, like mm -hmm. hundreds and hundreds of kids. <laughs> and I was sitting there, and I felt like I was getting these looks from all the different parents, like, "Who is this guy who just walked into this theater by himself?" And I was just sitting there, like giggling, <laughs> laughing, watching the movie by myself. I actually ended up leaving because I felt so uncomfortable because oh, of the no. looks I was getting. Anyway, that was the time I saw Brave. That's that's to say I, I would see movies, animated movies by myself. I love animated films. I love I them. I love them too. I, none of my adult friends will see them with me because they feel like they're silly. No. Why are you – I'm like, what? These movies make me cry all the time. They're not silly. 100%. I go out of my way to see – even if I didn't have – I mean, I, that's probably why my daughter loves animated films like yeah. as much as she does is because I'm forcing her to watch some <laughs> of these things. Daddy, I don't want to see the superhero dog movie. Yes, you do. No, we're definitely watching that. Anyway. Yeah. So I don't know. I'm curious what other people's opinions are about animation and if they do feel like it's sort of a lesser medium for some reason. Like, I'd be curious to know why. And I wonder if, just to play devil's advocate. Yeah, play it. Is it because, hey, when you set up a light, in a live action, there's a person actually physically doing the job and having to like physically do this in real time in real space versus an animator just moves, uh, you know, a light in a computer. Is that the difference that's upsetting people? Because it's still the same skill. You have to know how to light something. You have to know what looks cool. You have oh, to give yeah. it mood. It's all the same things. You're just doing one in physical and one on a computer. Have you ever watched the behind the scenes of Frozen? No. It's on Disney Plus. Oh my, or Frozen 2. It's so crazy. I think I was actually messaging you about this. I was like, I you need so to too. watch this. The reason, what, what I was thinking is there is a animator who, you know, they have thousands of animators and they focus on all these different people and it's kind of the behind the scenes of making this movie. And they focus on this one girl who had a scene that was like five seconds long and it was Honestly, just like Elsa walking through the wind. And the entire mm -hmm. time she's like going over and over. Okay, this is how the shadow hits here over and over. This is where the light's coming down. Again, here's where the pattern wrinkles. And it, I mean, it's like 10,000 hours for five seconds. Yeah. And, and it got cut. 
Oh no. And they talk about that. And so she, it, but it was all part of the process. And he was like, you know, yeah, I wish it made it. And like it got cut or whatever. And, and some of the other animators were just like freaking out with their significant others because they saw five seconds of their uh, footage. And it's, I guess that's all to say, it's like, it's almost seems harder and more time consuming to make something that can't be redone that quickly. Yeah. This is something that this isn't like, you know, oh, let's let's shoot that again, change the lighting. So And that's something, by the way, I you're so right. It take that's why Pixar movies take years and years to yeah. make and why they're able to put Easter eggs from their future movies into movies that release now because they're already working on them and they take so long, which yeah, you're right. If it takes longer, isn't that more skill? I'm not gonna say more skill. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna take that away from live yeah, action people. Don't. It's it's I mean it's just more time. I honest to God feel like time. it's more time. Yeah. And you're right. Like there's for, for Tomb Raider, for instance, we get three shots at changing mm. the animatic for the, for the episode. And then it's it. Then they have to ship it away. They have to go animate it and it's done. Like you, you can't really change stuff after three yeah. rounds of notes basically. And that's real tough. Um, we've heard, you know, when stuff goes to the editing room, that's live action. They have the ability to reshoot things. They have ability to like recut constantly and they they have um, extra footage that they can work from. That's not the case with animation. They they animate what they need. Yeah. And then if you need to change something, which often you do because that's the way that this business works, um, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. So it's it's really hard. <laughs> All right. Perfect transition okay. into our big topic. Yeah. Pixar. Fucking Pixar. We're going to talk about what our favorite top five Pixar movies are, and we have to justify why. Okay. I wonder if how similar ours. I think ours are actually very different. I know they are because <laughs> I've talked to you about some of mine, and you're like, yeah, I still haven't watched it yet. Or oh, yeah, That's I, not I, true. I think I've I, watched I, them all. Oh, yeah. You like that one? That's true. You're not that even going to believe what my number one is. Is it Coco? No, it's Inside Out. No, no. Oh, okay. I, so can I, let me take a step back real quick. Yeah. I had to think really freaking hard about this because I was thinking to myself, like, what is what makes me love these Pixar movies? And I had to really consider, like, the idea of what a Pixar movie means to me. Yeah. And I ended up kind of coming down to, like, the joy that it brings me. Mm -hmm. and what it ended up doing for me in this moment because there's so many good ones that anyone could be argued to be like the best I think mm -hmm. yeah so you know what inside out's not even in my five. <gasps> I am truly shocked by that me too it was in it was like number two and then like I meditated on it and I was like I'm dropping it to six <laughs> shit all right. Which all has right. the most beautiful message, by the way, out of all Pixar so movies. So beautiful. Like you can't have happiness without sadness. I know. Fuck. Am I bumping it back up? It's not in my five either. Oh, okay. Do you want to go first? No, you go. Are you ready for this? Toy Story 3. Three. Three. Not even one. Toy Story 3. Is that the one with the bear? Yeah, Lotso. See, this is what I'm talking about. I knew you. You're like... <laughs> That's the one with the bear. I'm so dismissive. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, okay, cool. Let me go. <laughs> your opinion doesn't count. Yeah. All right. Tell, well, okay. Why is that your favorite? Here's why. Okay. Granted. <laughs> granted. You have to see two other movies for this movie to really hit. 
So uh-huh. I get I get there's some points off, but this movie as a kind of wrap up to like a perfect trilogy, in my opinion. Mm. And I do know there's a fourth one, but <laughs> <laughs> but as far as this one goes, they introduce new characters. Lotso, Ken, uh, all the characters inside of Sunnyside, this like uh, mm-hmm. daycare for the little girl. They finally gave Woody a chance to get away from Andy. It was like a very heartfelt story about letting go of, he, like, if, I don't know if you remember the big, yeah. like, in the first few minutes, they like make a phone call and he gets picked up by Andy and he's just like, or no, he, he hears the, Andy's voice and he's just like longing for the good old days. Yeah. And it's just like this amazing and touching story about letting go and just moving forward and they move on to a new kid. And Tasha, the reason why this jumped into my number one spot is this has a moment the only moment I've ever actually thought, oh my God, I'm about to watch toys die in a Pixar movie <laughs> happens at the end of Pixar or Toy Story 3 is yeah. when they're going down the incinerator and the fire's yeah. blasting. I was, I, I was freaking out for like four or five seconds. Yeah. Yeah. That was like the most traumatic moment in animation Pixar history. I would argue, I would not argue, I would agree that that's what it is. <laughs> And so anyway, I love Toy Story 3. I feel like it brings so many elements and introduces new elements. And I feel like it's a fucking perfect movie. It's untouchable in my mind. And I love Toy Story 1. I really love Toy Story 2. But Toy Story 3 just brings it home. And it just it has a special spot in my heart. It's funny because I remember you talking at the beginning of this how you're, you chose yours based on how they made you feel. Mm-hmm. And there's a complete lack of joy for me in that movie. It is one of the most depressing movies, I think, of all time. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> and I can't justifiably put that in my top five because it, it makes me so sad. And I also fucking hated that bear. I wanted to just kick it. Why? Because he's a good it. villain? Maybe. Wow. It doesn't sound like it's not only not in your top five, it's like not in your top Pixar. <laughs> like it's not even I put movie. it really I put it really low on my all time list. Yeah, it's real real down there. Jesus. So that's my number one. I love it. I feel like if if you're a screenwriter and for some like it, well, I don't know. It's hard. I totally buy your can your argument that it is a fantastic conclusion to a trilogy because it solidifies an arc that has been going on for three episodes essentially mm-hmm. in a in a really tragic terrible way it's fucking beautiful i get that i guess it's cathartic oh my god it's so amazing <sighs> well There's, interestingly okay. yeah, my go. number one is toy story one wow because it is the most joyful of the toy stories yeah and I think that's a perfect movie. It's the arcs in that singular movie are incredible between Woody and Buzz and how they learn. It's a buddy cop movie, essentially. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know about the cop part, but it's a buddy movie. And it's just done so well. The humor is fantastic. But I think the setup to the characters in the world is so enviable as a screenwriter, how they manage those things. And I think for me, it transformed what animation was and could be. Mm-hmm. And it was always what I hoped animation could be. It was what I always wanted animation to be, the kind of animation I wanted to write. And I finally saw it in Toy Story where these these really clean, 
adult themes that still translated to freaking children's toys and were was watchable and consumable by children and children could feel the same things that adults were feeling but just maybe in a more simplistic way but they still felt it like all of the things yeah. that i wanted animation and new animation could be and that's why i was always so confused when managers and, and agents would say you need a comedy sample i'm like toy story is not a comedy yeah. it's funny but it's not a comedy so Changed my life. Toy Story. So I will say, I just want to agree with you. I feel like that, for me, I didn't even include it because it felt like the most, not obvious, but like most important movie that like changed the entire path of animated films. Yes. And I can, I mean, I agree with everything you just said. Mine should probably be, my 1A would be Toy Story. Just, (laughs) I want to show some respect to the OG. Okay. My number two, Hmm. Nemo. Okay. Respect it. Uh, I also feel, I feel like structurally, this is a perfect movie and much like Toy Story. I, and something I just really love about Pixar movies is that they really set up the needs and the wants of the characters. Mm -hmm. It's so amazing how crystal clear you're like, okay, I know what that person thing. I know that problem that that thing has. Yes. And I know that Marlon can't see, you know, he's, he's afraid to let Nemo out of sight and I know why. And like, yeah. he just wants to protect his son. That's it. Oh, and that little fish, he wants adventure. Good. You know, and like, it's so clear. Mm-hmm. And I feel like Nemo was just, man, it's like a fish movie that just makes you cry. It does. I Nemo's my number three. I agree with you. It is one of the more perfect movies ever made structurally. <laughs> I feel mm-hmm. like it's it's so incredible for the exact reasons you just mentioned very eloquently. And I think too... All of those things that you mentioned, just knowing so clearly up front what your two main characters want, Nemo and his dad, it creates an engine that mm-hmm. f- just completely propels the movie in this fantastic way that's very difficult to do. And we talk about engines a lot, um, particularly in TV, where you just have to keep an engine going for so much longer than a movie. But engines are very important. And act two is usually where your engine just dies. And it doesn't die in this movie because it's set up so clearly. You know exactly what he wants. So you know every step he's taking is towards that goal very clearly. And I think that's where engines can die when you're like, why are we here again? What are we doing over here? You never feel that. You know exactly what Marlon is going after. And then on top of that, the other, the other layer is your the fear, like you're talking about. You set up his, his um, sort of personal problem. He has a world problem, which he needs to go get his son back. But his personal problem is his fear of, of everything. And so now every new episode that he goes through is also about overcoming his fear, which is another engine. And that's yeah. really cool. And I just think it could have e- so easily been an episodic road movie, which so many mm-hmm. road movies are, but it wasn't because of the first act. So, I mean, I feel like we should break down the first act of this movie at some point Definitely. to kind of crack how it how it's done. But go back and look at the first act. It creates a fantastic engine. Wow. That's perfect. It's beautiful. I love, I love Finding Nemo. My number three. My number two, though, is Monsters, Inc. Wow. I do think Finding Nemo is maybe a more perfect movie structurally, but Monsters, Inc., I guess guess it just brings me so much joy. The world is so fantastic and so complete. Like you, you absolutely feel like that is a working, functioning world. And that was just like such a joy to see. And I'd never seen anything like that before. And then on top of it, you just get two really fun characters that have insane emotion. Like I don't feel like I've ever laughed 
as hard as I laughed when um, Sully thinks Boo was smashed into a little ball of trash. <laughs> I was crying and like hiccup laughing oh, wow. in the theater. And I've never felt that way before. And again, to do that in an animated movie where you're also crying and experiencing yeah. like real adults. I say adult emotions because it does feel like there's a maturity to Pixar and the cry, like it's easy to make someone cry in just like a slapstick animated movie because you just, I mean, it's just, it's an easy get, right? Just like yeah. the slapstick fart joke is an easy laugh, but yeah, yeah. Pixar goes above and beyond in how they make you cry. <laughs> so I'm just starting to realize something, the brilliance behind Pixar and what they do. And what's really interesting about what you just said is that it's like world building. Like they created this whole other world monsters uh town or whatever their town is called and it's awesome it's seamless and it makes total sense and i love monsters inc by the way but what pixar is so great at doing is like grounding all of this world creation into real life mm -hmm. meaning he goes to see boo and he's actually in a bedroom and like you in toy story it's in the real world but it's toys that come alive in nemo they're still fishermen you know but it's like a yeah. fish world and it's just really smart. It's just, I don't know. It's 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 really brilliant. But Monsters Inc. might have been the first like world building that they did where they actually created an outside world. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah, that might be huh. right. I actually don't remember the order with which these no. were released, but this was either. pretty early. That makes yeah, sense. Just, it was very early. Should I go on to my number three? Yeah. Wally. Okay. You've got beef with Wally. No, I, I like Wally. Wally's like eleventh for me. It's sort of like middling. So I I it took me a while to come around to Wally. Okay. But and I do have a beef with Wally, and it almost dropped it completely off of my my list. Go on. My beef is that when Wally watches TV and when he sees old video footage, they're real humans. They're not mm. Pixar people. Like he's right. watching singing <laughs> dancing in the rain, and it's like, I don't understand. Everyone else in this movie is like a little cartoon character. Yeah. Why are we all of a sudden seeing real people? Uh-huh. That's your beef. That's that's not a bad beef if that's your only beef. <laughs> <laughs> I just love Wally. I it's like a silent movie that plays out and you're watching the you're watching this mm. little robot like short circuit who, you know, he just wants to like hold someone's hand. He's watching yeah. all these like little movies, but he's just doing his job over and over and over. He's this unsung hero that ends up recreating humanity. Yeah. And it's beautiful. It goes into outer space. Yeah. What's your problem with Wally? As soon as the real people come in, I I tune out. I don't I don't care about them. I have fallen in love with Wally. I only want to be with Wally, and suddenly I'm in these other people's points of view and I don't like being there. Yeah, but Wally helps those people show them how to I don't to mind restart. that, but if I recall it does break his point of view and just like goes, there's like a, there's an actual human who becomes kind of a, a side hero. Right. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. I just don't, I don't care. Like if it was completely through Wally's point of view, that would have helped me. I gotcha. But, it, but yeah, every time we're in like human world, I just, when are we going to go back to Wally? Okay. That's fair. But every Wally scene is beautiful and I love it. Yeah. And also like if you're writing a silent film for whatever reason, mm -hmm. watch Wally. I love that take of the silent film aspect of it. That's super cool. Okay. What's your number? F well, your number three is. Finding uh, Nemo. Finding Nemo. Yeah. 
So my number four is Onward. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is Onward even on your top five? Don't tell me. Okay. Just... <laughs> I I debated putting Onward first, to be honest, because it currently is the movie I rewatch the most on this Pixar list. Yeah. I just sometimes have it on just replay because I love D&D. &D. Yeah. <laughs> I love fantasy. So it's super up my alley just for the world aspect. And speaking to what you mentioned about Monsters, Inc., like the something when I think about world and Monsters, Inc., where they did a good job was the whole scene where they're walking to, to work and there are all these similarities to how we walk to work, but yeah. just monsterfied. There's a guy pouring coffee and it's sludge, but it's coffee. We, we recognize it. Onward has all those same aspects to it, just fantasy-fied which I really enjoyed. Um, the brother story was, I thought, really emotional. But I do not think it was the strongest character movie of all of these five, which is yeah. why I put it at fourth, even though I, I love watching it the most. I feel like the the Tom Holland character is a little weak in how they wrote him a little bit. I think they arc really well. I just I just wish just uh, like see, some of the scene work was a little stronger. I freaking love Onward. You know, you, I mean, let's listen. I probably have mentioned this now in every podcast we've done. It's like when when you get into the father son relationship, I'm like, oh yeah, buy me a tissue. Yeah, and um, oh man, in that father son relationship, ugh, just thinking I know. about it. I know it was awesome, and actually, Onward was the last movie I saw pre pandemic. It oh, was damn. like right, right when it was all picking up. And the reason I bring that up is because I feel like it didn't get like the fair Pixar. Mm shake if that mm -hmm. makes sense like it was in a theater and then like the world shut down i mm -hmm. honestly think it was in the theater for a week it's not on my list mm. but i love it and all and it, by the way when we talk about this list my list is like these are all like very close together yeah so it's not like a definitive you know these are the better better whatever but it, yeah. anyway i love onward i actually agree with everything you said and i knew you would love that movie because of the uh the, the world. world yeah we actually, and th at the end of that movie, I feel like it really changed Paul, who has a brother, mm. and he just, I think he, he got very emotional and was immediately like, I have to call my brother. We need to have an amazing relationship. We need to repair ourselves. Like, wow. we need to do, like, he was yeah, very yeah. moved by it. And the fact that, again, Pixar, an animated movie can do that, I think is, I love them. I love Pixar. I love Pixar too. My next move, uh, my number four, Ratatouille. I think this is a great one, and I'm really sad it didn't make my top five because I love this movie. Oh, my God. I love this movie. I, it took me a minute to kind of come around to, but I freaking love Ratatouille. I love everything it represents. I love that this little rat becomes this fucking amazing chef, <laughs> and and he forms this bond with a human being. It's so fun. And to this day, when I eat food... I don't know if you remember the end of Ratatouille. I do. When the when the um, critic eats the Ratatouille mm -hmm. and he gets flashback to when he was a kid. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just find it to be like the most brilliant kind of like uh, way to win over a villain mm. was because that's what cooking does. It like brings you back to a certain place. And yeah. that's what this little amazing rat was able to do. <laughs> do you like it because you're very drawn to sort of ordinary heroes who become extraordinary yeah <laughs> like you don't get more ordinary than a street rat i i think so and he's just so like optimistic on change and he just follows his passion he's like you know what i'm going to cook i'm going to do this and he just keeps going and he's yeah. grinding and i think that's probably why i i, I connect to it 
I can see that. That's very you. I just, I told you yesterday, you're so optimistic and I love that about you. But I it's feel good. like you took it as an insult, but actually it's <laughs> not. But yeah, he is the most, it's interesting because yeah, he is, I'm pausing because oftentimes I feel like I choose heroes who definitely are not optimistic. Mm -hmm. They are world weary, beaten down, and they become optimistic. Yeah. But this little guy, he's optimistic from go, and he's still the hero of your movie. Like, it can still work. I think I always am afraid if you start with happy, how do you grow from there? But I think that Ratatouille is a perfect example of how to do yeah. it. Yeah, it's amazing because it's it, it it's one of those scenarios where you put a more brilliance of Pixar. It's like, all right, what's the worst thing you can put in a kitchen? Oh, yeah. it's a rat. Okay, no one likes rats. Everyone hates rats. All right, well, how do we make people have empathy for a rat and love this rat by the end and win over humans by the end of this movie? And yeah. they did it. They're amazing. Cute little fucking rat. <laughs> I want him cooking for me. I wouldn't eat his food though, but I want him. <laughs> dirty, <laughs> dirty little, little rat. Hands. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what's number your number five? five? Brave. I, I, I'm not surprised, but I didn't see this one coming. Brave is like the Mulan of Pixar. Why don't we have more badass women in Pixar? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm um, now I'm thinking. Like I want to cosplay as chick from Brave. She's amazing. She's she's so cool and she has a bow and arrow. She don't need no man. She's trying to live her life. I also have a thing about mother-daughter stories. It's a insane mother-daughter story that yeah. makes me cry every time I watch it. The metaphor is so beautiful about, yeah. you know, wanting to change your mother or change your daughter only to realize you have to accept them for who they are, but also come to understand each other. Mm -hmm. That's part of that process. And then they, they're to protect each other. And there's some humor in it. It's just like so beautiful. Totally. And another, I guess, a good good reminder for screenwriters, if I remember correctly in this movie, there's the legend of Morgu, Morgu that big mm -hmm. bear that ends up like massacring in the entire town or something like that in the beginning. Yeah. And then Brave is like, all right, well, what's the one thing that will really disrupt this family. Oh, let's turn the mom and the kids into bears because everyone mm -hmm. hates bears. And that's, it's, yeah, they just, you know, they go for it. And mm -hmm. I think that's really important when you're, as a screenwriter, when you're writing and even for myself, where it's like, oh, all right, we got to put these people in the worst case scenario. You know what? This is clearly the common thread between like all of these Pixar movies is here's our world. What's the absolute worst thing that can happen? And let's figure out what the repercussions are. Monsters, Inc. Worst thing that could happen is a child gets in. Holy shit, a child gets in. Toy Story, what's the worst that can happen? This perfect little sanctuary of a Toy Story room gets fucked up by a new toy. And yeah. that has, you have to now deal with the consequences of that. Wow. What a lesson from Pixar <laughs> that we probably knew, but it wasn't crystallized until this moment. This moment. Do I have my number five? Do you? I do, but did I? oh yeah, I'm on number five. Coco. Of course. You know I love Coco. I know. I I. It I'm, just I'm surprised it beats Inside Out. To be honest, I am too. I trust me when I tell you this. Like, because here's you know what it came down to. Father son story. 
wow, no, I didn't even think about that. I was thinking there's parts in Inside Out that I kind of tune out of when I watch it. Mm. But with Coco, I'm just in the entire time. And you know I love musicals. I know Coco is not a musical, but there is music in Coco, and it is so uplifting. I would call it a musical. Oh, really? I think so. All right. Let's call it a musical. Well, there's not like choreographed dancing where everyone starts singing in the streets like in Kanto. It's it's more so like they're on a stage and he's performing for somebody. Okay. I gotcha. You know what? Again, it's the story of like this boy who really wants something. And he just goes after it and he shouldn't, you know, he goes back into this underworld to um, get permission to play music. Mm -hmm. And it's just so beautiful. I feel like you and Paul need to rewatch Coco. You've asked me to do this several times and I have, and each time I've liked it more and more. Oh, you have watched it? Yeah. Oh, damn. It's just still not in my top five. Well, I love me some Coco. I think it's honestly because of the music. I don't really like it. Mama Coco. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot you had your SAG card. (laughs) (laughs) If anyone needs me, one line. (laughs) Yeah, I also have my SAG card. But anyway, that's my So if we were to do a breakdown of a Pixar movie, which one would you pick for us to do? I almost want to do one that hasn't been done. I feel like Finding Nemo would be great, but I feel like it's been picked apart before. What about The Incredibles? What about A Bug's Life? Why doesn't anyone love A Bug's Life? Kevin Spacey? I, fair. (laughs) (laughs) But he's such a great villain in that. I love A Bug's Life. (laughs) I love A Bug's Life too. You know what? A Bug's Life is fucking awesome. It is. That movie's like about an uprising about yeah. what happens when a bunch of people who are told that they're not not good enough come together and take over like overthrow a government. Yeah. And I really oh. related to it cuz it's kind of about a nerd who everyone thinks is nerdy and so they ignore and then turns out the nerd is the leader of the revolution. Mm. Let that be a lesson to no. Yeah. Nerds, I guess. Yeah, no, I I love man, that is a good movie. But yeah, we should do a breakdown of okay. one of these. I would happen. I would break down Dory. Oh god. Okay. What do you mean? No, you did you're that face. Finding like, Dory? Oh, I mean I mean Nemo, sorry. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, but while we're here, how do you feel about finding Dory? It's uh one of the last movies on my list. Well, if anyone has any opinions about which Pixar movie we should break down. Let us know. We will do yeah. it. It's There's always so many lessons to learn from Pixar. They are amazing storytellers because they do it collectively, and that's the way to do everything. Yeah, it's true. Okay. Quote of the day. You're going to love this one. I'm ready. Your only limit is your soul, but only the fearless can be great. Chef Gusto from Ratatouille. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> I love Ratatouille. <laughs> Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act Two Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. And I'm Joshua Hallman on Twitter, Josh Hallman on Instagram.
And as always, the Act Two podcast is a production of Act Two, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Beg, which you can find on Spotify. Mm-hmm.